Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 63. I'm Amelia, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Ken. Paul can't join us this week, but we're going to discuss Atlanta's endangered brutalist broyer, Shigeru Bond's relief efforts in Ecuador, and a new lobby bringing together the biggest names in driverless vehicles. So this issue with the broyer in downtown Atlanta is their downtown library, and it has recently been brought to our attention that this is basically an endangered building, that the city is thinking of demolishing it to hopefully install what they want to be the equivalent of their Seattle library. Something that will bring tourism, that will be a big splash downtown and just attract a lot of money and tourism. However, a lot of people are, of course, and as is kind of the brutalist standby, outraged by this um, and want to protect the building for not only its unique design, but also the fact that it was Breuer's last building uh, before he died. So Donna and Ken, do you guys have strong brutalist feelings about this I should say heroic building. Isn't that the uh, alternate naming device for brutalism? <laughs> I do have strong brutalist feelings. Yes, I have a brutalist heart, I think. I have a soft spot for, for brutalism. And I especially have a soft spot for Marcel Breuer's work, in part because in, God, how many years ago has it been that we did this Gross Point Library project online on Archonnect. It was one of the first big collaborations online on Archonnect where we saved the Gross Point Library from being demolished. It was proposed to be knocked down and replaced with a really banal piece of garbage. And uh, we managed to bring in Docomomo and we, you know, we, we brought in some groups and we had a public exhibition of the work and it was an online charrette and we managed, I would say, help to save the, the building. So that was an earlier building of Breuer's and it was more modern, I would say, than brutalist. But this one I think is just, is beautiful. It's a masterpiece. Obviously, Breuer's work is, you know, they're not making any more of it. So if this gets knocked down, it's just one less piece of his work that we have. I loved reading some of the comments on the article that were um, people saying, you know, there's plenty of ugly parking garages right around that site. Why can't we just knock one of those down and put up a new library and keep the Breuer, which is a masterpiece building, and turn it into something else? Maybe it's a community art center or a contemporary art museum or something like that. So we'll see. My biggest takeaway from the comments that I read about the article was that this is not by any means a done deal. It is not. No one is actually flat out proposing right now that we're going to tear this building down. They're just looking at what the options are in terms of their library system at this point. So hopefully we won't have to do another big uh, online push to to save this one as well. Ken, what do you think? <laughs> you know, I, I again, I think it's a case of uh, blaming the building for uh, a failure of a library system, a city government to maintain its own public buildings. And part of the problem I have with it is that perhaps the program is outdated and it doesn't mean the building is unusable. Maybe it's somebody else could find a new use for the building. And it doesn't seem like there's anyone really thinking about that, which is seems problematic for me. I, I happen to like the building. It's not, you know, it's not the, it's not the Whitney, it's not the Whitney. Um, but it certainly does have its own charm. And I think from, I think when people just when you get this money shot of the exterior, I think something is very much lost in what happens on the inside, which there's a, it appears to have a lot more warmth and a lot more vitality than the, than the exterior kind of suggests. So, Amelia, let me ask you, as someone who was not trained in architecture, do you like brutalism? Do you like this example of brutalism? Well, I definitely have a hard time ascribing any like or dislike to any genre or like kind of movement, even in architecture. I, I think there are definitely things that I tend to like more or not, but at the same time, I always feel a little icky saying like, I heart brutalism or I heart <laughs> neo or whatever. But in this particular instance, I'm, and having actually had the, like having been in Atlanta and kind of experienced what just that downtown was like, I do think that having a building like this is 
an incredible weird gift in that kind of downtown environment where what's at stake isn't necessarily, which of course, as Donna mentioned, like this isn't actually facing the chopping block at this time, but the idea that just something this weird could be lost and in that context, I think is kind of automatically a shame. And as a lot of people have suggested, I think there's a huge opportunity to kind of treat this as just a alternate space saying, okay, yeah, the the program could be changed. We could figure out how better to interpret this as a library resource without necessarily funding it or keeping it as our core downtown library. So I think there's like a lot to be said about just keeping it for the sake of keeping it. But at the same time, I definitely do like had a little, I had a little snicker of like reading the, the comments where there's a bunch of, you know, posts of military apparatuses as comparing them. Oh, this is exactly the same thing as a brutalist building as these concrete barriers or such. And how that I find funny, if not a little bit frustrating for people who are legitimately like involved in designing these things and also creating the aesthetic. And I'm also just like largely anti-automatic destruction of things as I'm much more happy to see things weirded out in the course of a historical moment than to kind of just wipe the slate clean and say, okay, we're going to do something else. Which when when the Gross Point Library was threatened with demolition, that was part of the argument was that it is a very nice little mid-century modern building by a master. And what was proposed to replace it was just schlock, just suburban, you know, drive it kind of schlock with a lot of surface parking, because that was, of course, one of the issues of these downtown buildings frequently is they don't have enough parking. You know, what I found in the comments on the one a curbed article about it was that a lot of people were saying things like, yeah, but the way the sunlight hits it in the afternoons is so lovely. Like, I think people were really who were supporting it were appreciating how it exists in the city as a as a piece, not just as a standalone, you know, a, a building in a field or something. Mm-hmm. And I thought I'm just going to add this. One of the, the the curbed article I read led me to another curbed article about the Met Museum taking over the, the Breuer's Whitney Museum in New York. It's an article by Tanae Warwicker, and I'm sure I'm saying that name wrong. There's a photograph of the stairwell, the very famous stairwell there that's extremely compressed and tight and dark and closed so that you then explode into the into the gallery space. And it says part of the restoration of the of that stairwell included polishing all the wood railings, but on the lower level, they left the wood untouched so that you could see that wear of the thousands and thousands of hands over the years that have worn away at it. And to me, this is where we should be in our conversations about preservation and historic use of buildings is they don't have to be perfect. Everyone doesn't have to be perfect all the time. And if we can keep this patina of use in ways that is poetic and resonant, you know, when you go to see a a bronze sculpture somewhere and like the big toe is rubbed gold where the rest of the bronze has been allowed to weather, those are beautiful moments in our interaction with the physical environment. And I love that what's now called the Met Breuer, they saved this, you know, worn in wooden handrail as a remembrance of the, the past of the building. Absolutely. I love that anecdote, Donna. I think that's really, really wonderful and, and totally something that stands to be experienced with the with this downtown library is that you have, I believe, built in 1980 or opened in 1980. So it still has many years Finished, left. yeah. Completed in 1980. Yeah, exactly. So it has so much life left to it. And I also, I think that this, even though, again, to stress like this isn't a make or break scenario at this point, that the library isn't absolutely in danger at the very moment, the way that at least it's described in this article that we posted on the way that the proposal for the new library is made, to me extended this extremely cavalier attitude about, yeah, let's just build a new civic institution like every 30 years to attract whatever money we need to to the downtown. And just that that attitude around like, oh, we just need one of those star architectural jewel boxes <laughs> to replace this thing is absolutely, I think, a very 
problematic precedent to set. And especially in a place like Atlanta that has a very a kind of downtown that is not exactly as filled out as it could be. This idea of just like, okay, we're going to replace what we want just to get the latest conventioneers. I'm thinking also of our, of the fact that we were conventioneers last year at the Atlanta National Convention mm-hmm. and <laughs> having that kind of realizing that that is the kind of attitude that would be catered towards is kind of icky. <laughs> but yeah. Well, and at downtown Atlanta, in my experience there, is just this great collection of a lot of really cool, brutalist spaces. But that doesn't mean that we didn't walk all over the city and find a very pleasant, you know, frequently you can jump under a um, a brutalist arcade and when it's raining, there you go, you're happy or you're out of the, sh- you're in the shade. I mean, I just don't think this knee-jerk reaction of exposed concrete means bad urbanism is always appropriate. And especially in Atlanta, it just felt really, it felt like a good, good connection to the city to have these uh, these very bold buildings. And then you go into the all those Portman interiors with the atriums that were just mind-bogglingly cool. <laughs> you know. Yeah, we shouldn't we shouldn't be throwing these things away so quickly. So we also wanted to discuss briefly a news post around Shigeru Ban's relief efforts in Ecuador after the um, quite devastating earthquake there on April 16th. As of that news post, it was reported over 600 people had died and over 26,000 were displaced. And so as a part of his uh, nonprofit Voluntary Architects Network, Shigeru Ban has been going to Ecuador to train people to erect the relief shelters. So this is one of the latest efforts that the Volunteer Architects Network has done in these kinds of disaster relief scenarios. And it's been a major part of Bond's practice for quite some time, pretty much ever since he won the Pritzker in the early 90s. It's kind of informed not only his style and that continuation of these kind of cheap to build, easy to erect structures for relief, but that also it's now formed its own uh, NGO, the Voluntary Architects Network. I was wondering if for both Donna and Ken, seeing an architect of this stature creating an NGO like Volunteer Architects Network, at what point do you think that this kind of work would have been successful without the celebrity of Shigeru Ban attached to it? Do you think that this kind of coverage would really even be commonly taken care of? Can you explain that a little bit more? Sure. Well, basically, it's like the Brad Pitt effect, right? Like, (laughs) here is this significant architect who is Prisker winning and does work that is incredibly important in relief efforts and really does not try to overstep the bounds. A lot of the work is very much about relief. It's not about rebuilding. It goes, the idea is to build shelters and to just directly connect with the relief efforts on the ground to teach them how to build things cheaply and quickly for the people that need them at the time. And of course, there are similar organizations to this, but in the fact that it's attached to the celebrity of Bon, it kind of ticks over into the more significant arena, at least in the press. So I'm wondering if you guys have thoughts about what it is that Bon's architectural cachet really does in the course of keeping this NGO happening and working and perhaps how successful it might be when it actually goes to a place like Ecuador. I think I get what you're I think where you're getting at. And, and I've, I look hard at things like this because I, I'm always suspicious of someone lending their celebrity to um, an effort where the press that is there is actually more cumbersome and, you know, the effort is more, it's more about him and his effort and less about the effort. So I always wonder, but it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of negative press coming out of this or any commentary. So it's hard to kind of, you know, be too hard on him when I'm not hearing anything negative from it. You know, I kind of wondered, you know, he's training these people, but why doesn't, why does he personally have to be involved? Why isn't he training people to actually train people? So why isn't someone 
why does he personally need to be so invested in it? That's a, you know, that would be one thing I could think of where I'd be asking, you know, uh, you clearly are not going to be doing the work yourself. You're clearly not going to be training every single person there. You're going to have other facilitators. You most likely don't speak the language. So, I mean, you're going to have people. So I just wonder, like you said, is it more about attaching his name to something so that funds or or, or and attention is driven towards an effort so that he can fundraise for the next relief effort. No, can I, basically, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you took that up because I also feel like I don't want to, I'm in no way trying to throw shade on Bond's <laughs> efforts or, no. or Voluntary Architects Network. But I do think that, especially with these organizations where the goal is to be kind of the first responder, like the one that goes in to not attach itself to a broken building system to help it before anything bad happens, but instead always go in when they are most needed at the after a disaster. And just how those different groups are able to get in contact with the organizations that they actually can form partnerships when they're helping out after the relief, but also how how successful they can be in the longer run. And I think having a name like Bon attached to this is extremely significant also because he's he really is, even if he's not, which Surprisingly, he is often pictured like doing the actual work and doing the actual instruction and and building and such with these groups. But it is significant that he creates this organization to move on after him. And while it is also his design, that his designs and his kind of innovations that are being used to improve in these relief efforts. So I think there's just an interesting thing to me here where you have like both the architect who is the celebrity name and also building for obviously huge clients. And in fact, there was some kind of hilarious, easily translated quote within this article that we linked to where Bond says, you know, you know, the people I build for now, are, there's really no difference between them, these big names and like the, these relief efforts I do, except the big names pay me a lot more. <laughs> I thought that was like, yes, that is basically the difference. But it was at least um, refreshing to hear him just kind of explain it as like, this is the kind of work that I do. And I can see how it causes a lot of cognitive dissonance for certain practitioners or for certain people. But to me, it's like, it's all very important. It's just one allows me to do the other. So I guess my, I'm not, I'm just dancing around the question of just how the celebrity also plays into the actual efficacy of the relief effort. I mean, I wonder if at some point as a celebrity, if you attach yourself to a cause that you think is important, and maybe it's even just, I'm thinking of like a celebrity tweeting out something in support of, you know, cancer research or whatever. And then you sort of feel like, well, I can't turn my back on them now because this is actually a cause that really needs help. And if celebrity is what I have to offer, then that's what I that's the, that's what I have to offer. You know, like at this point, if Bond were to say he's kind of painted himself into the corner of saying, well, I can't go to Ecuador because I'm too busy working on this opera house or whatever. <laughs> so in a way, you know, sometimes the the showing your face is the best support you can give something like this. Right. So the fact that he's there, maybe he as a celebrity, that is what he absolutely has to offer. And then he's hoping that the people there will turn it into a, a longer term educational process. And I admit, sort of part of my thinking about this is is colored by how much I want to absolutely have an idealistic belief in Brad Pitt's <laughs> uh, humanitarian work <laughs> being truly because he has a wonderful heart and just cares about the people and making the world a better place. So <laughs> even though he does look very handsome as he wields the hammer, you know, on the on the job site, it, it um, I do feel like as a celebrity in a way, probably, you know, you're a human. You kind of have to say, well, I that if that's what I can offer, then that's what I will. That's what I will offer. That's what I'll do to help. 
but you know, he's not. I guess the. I guess if you want to, I'll yeah, take up a little please. bit of the, and criticize him a little bit, and just say, you know, he's not. He's not Batman. <laughs> he's not. He can't be or Superman. He can't be in all places at all times. And to you know, what effort, if things happen where to align themselves, where there's a disaster, where in separate parts of the world on opposite sides of the globe, you know, he can't be in both places at the same time, right? So I mean, he risks running into that situation where why is this group more important than this group? I mean, so I think hopefully, I mean, I would imagine that a man as intelligent as he is with, you know, winning a Pritzker that he's, he's really assembling teams that can deploy much like, you know, most NGOs. And I would imagine, you know, he's more effective that way. But if he gets, if he's bringing attention to the issues of disaster relief, you know, it, it, I think it's a, it's a good thing. I just wish it was, would translate to something a little bit more fundamentally, some more structural changes that need to happen with countries. You know, we have a United Nations for a reason, and it doesn't, it seems like we're relying on a lot of these NGOs to operate outside of those kinds of things and to, you know, work the celebrity angle to try to bring attention to things when we should be expecting our leaders to kind of, you know, take up that situation and and really manage it better. I totally agree with that, as I don't remember which effort it was now that someone said this is a temporary solution to a problem that shouldn't have existed in the first place. Like if we were, oh, it was about Assemble doing one of their neighborhood regeneration efforts. And it was like, look, it's fun to do these neat projects, but if things were being run properly in the first place, we would never have to come in here and try to solve these problems short term. But I just also wanted to say that this also makes me think of Alejandro Herveda releasing all of his designs for things on Mm -hmm. the open source. And that maybe if something like that can come out of these workshops and things that Bon is doing, teaching people about rebuilding, that that will become much more of a force in our all of our efforts that these, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time that there are plans available to to assist in all of these situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I'd like some follow-up on some of these issues. Maybe it's already built into the narrative that, you know, his, his, his structures are temporary, so we don't really evaluate them a post, kind of a post-occupancy disaster report about how did it work? Was it functional? Did it serve the needs? Did it fall apart within two days? Were the tubes not coded correctly so that when the torrential, when this particular rain season, this monsoon season hit, that the tubes just melted into a puddle of a pulp? I mean, so I, those are the kinds of things that I would be asking myself that I'm, you know, thinking about now. Just, you know, is there a post-occupancy disaster report that someone could say, you know, these are effective for what for what he's providing, for what the need is immediately, these are serving the purpose and nobody really cares because they can transition those tubes to some other thing or, you know what, they're fine throwing them away or they're fine burning them or whatever. So I'd like to hear more about those kinds of things. You know, we know somebody's going to respond to disasters. That's just, that's just how we are, I think. But um, I'm more interested in what happens when he, when he's no longer, when he's not there lending his celebrity to the issue. And Donna, I'm so glad you brought up Alejandro Aravena's move by releasing his social housing designs into an open source forum. I'm so glad you brought that up. It was something that I was kind of hoping would would come up in conversation, but thought that it was just an, a very interesting moment right now, which of course, this, these kinds of things have been done many times before in various ways of architects or designers giving away things for free that they feel are going to serve a humanitarian cause or say, do the more I guess you would call not necessarily grassroots, but certainly more on the ground effort of simply going to where the problem is and addressing it directly. So these to me seem, and of course they're addressing very different problems. Something that is relief housing after disaster is not the same as a house that you will live in for the rest of your life. 
because you can't afford anything else or so on. But to say that these are architects who have identified a problem unique to their field that they feel they have some innovative solution to and are choosing to address those problems in very different ways. One being very, I feel, hands-off. Um, Alejandra Aravena releasing the designs isn't is is exactly that, releasing the designs to an open source forum so they can be changed, they can be modified, they can be adapted to wherever they need to go or wherever the people want to use them, which of course is also an admission to maybe having them not work so well. <laughs> but by Bond going to these individual places, he's he's kind of retaining a lot, at least to this effort, it seems as if the attempt is to retain much a tighter degree of control over how his designs are then used because he do, he really is the one who knows how to use them the best and how to put them to the best use for these uh, relief situations. Interesting. Do we have any more comments or thoughts about Shigeru? No, but I do want to say one silly thing, <laughs> which is the the curbed article called Bond the cardboard wielding Starkitect, which I thought was very cute. But Ken, when you just talked about these cardboard tubes melting down into a lump and mass, it just it made me think of Donald Trump because that's what he looks like. <laughs> <laughs> He's just a molten, melted mass of chewed up cardboard. Ugh. All right. So that's yeah. the uh, rendering challenge issued from this episode is we need a, a, a bust of Donald Trump made from disintegrating, disintegrating uh, cardboard tubes. Cardboard. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> All right. Post your best efforts at the show notes. Um, moving on. We have some very interesting news from the world of driverless cars. It was announced last week that a new lobby would be formed called the Self-Driving Coalition for Safer Streets. This lobby includes representatives from Ford, Google, Uber, Lyft, and Volvo, all of which have direct stakes in the driverless car world, whether it's producing their own or um, developing the technology to make them run. And they've created this lobby with this very strategically named lobby that is not so much about, you know, freedom to drive or freedom to not have to park a car, but it's about safe safety, that having a U.S. traffic system that relies on driverless vehicles will overall drastically increase safety on streets and sidewalks and make just a safer world for people to live in. Which sounds totally great, right? And no way that something with Ford, Google, Uber, Lyft, and Volvo involved in could ever be uh, at all slightly suspicious of anything. Um, but they're <laughs> trying to not mince my words. But um, but nonetheless, they are kind of the biggest players in the world of driverless vehicles and the actual implementation of them at this time. So, and the fact that we know that the Transportation Administration has been given many billions of dollars to help come up with a real strategy and implementation for driverless vehicles in the U.S., this is really starting to look like it will happen. <laughs> what do you guys think? I love my car. Uh, I don't love my car. I guess I love the, I'm in love with the idea of having my own car and driving my own car and controlling my own car. I have an idea, Ken. What's going to happen is that they're going to have a flawless driverless vehicle system. Within that is going to be embedded a flawless VR system that allows you to experience the autonomous vehicle as if it is not an autonomous vehicle. So you can like play a game that is you driving, which in fact you are not, but you are going around the streets pretending like, you know, you're doing your grocery shopping, going to, the, you know, get in the mail or whatever. And in fact, you haven't endangered anyone's life because you've never taken over the autonomous command of the vehicle and everyone is happier for it. So I'm sorry to interrupt your story, but I just, I felt like I needed to tell you that, that idea at that time. No, I, I, um, I think the problems I have with it are the things that I have problem with these auto companies right now. I mean, they're already 
I think it invalidates your warranty if you try to fix your own car, if you try to mess with your computer on your car. I think it's, and I'm not entirely positive it might even be against the law, but certainly you invalidate your warranty if you try to do anything to your own vehicle. And I can't imagine, you know, you know, 40 years ago, you know, when I have a, if I had a Hemi, Hemi Cuda and have Plymouth tell me that I couldn't, you know, change the spark plugs or couldn't adjust the timing on it to get a faster car. I mean, so if you just know that auto companies generally try to control their own technology and, and what kind of controls are they going to want to place on these kinds of uh, vehicles that I mean, it sounds like they have our own planned obsolescence in mind um, that we're just going to be, you know, carted around by General Motors and controlled by Uber. So I, I, you know, I'm a little leery of of it, but there's part of me that likes it and part of me that hates it. So it's a bit of a problem. I'm totally with you on the liking and hating, Ken, because I do absolutely believe that having a higher adoption or a more or less complete adoption of driverless vehicles would improve safety and traffic. Theoretically, I think that in practice, the whole thing would really just encourage more drivers or more cars entirely on the street at any given time. And as of yet, electronic vehicles are not necessarily green vehicles. So this is not in any way really solving much of a pollution issue. And in the course of actually having cities <laughs> that are built on the kind of structures or the networks that driverless vehicles will allow, I also don't necessarily think that even if you can make many promises about removed parking garages and such, I still don't believe that in the course of investing so much more in the driverless infrastructure that that will actually give way to more pleasant cities. And so I'm, I'm definitely like on the rah-rah techno-futurist vibe of like, this is just cool and we should do it and it will solve a lot of, or not solve, but it will help a lot of things around safety. But at the same time, that isn't from a perspective of actually fixing a lot of urban issues around driving. I don't really think that this is going to be any type of golden bullet or anything, especially with the idea that if we can make driverless vehicles so available and so accepted that your four-year-old will think nothing of like hitching a ride to the candy <laughs> store. You know, like that's a stupid example, but just to, that to say like we more cars and less driver culpability means more drivers. So it just seems like an invitation for the problems that would come with that. And I think, I think the, you know, what's, what's missing from this list is, um, the larger freight companies. I think this is perfectly, these kinds of vehicles and this kind of technology is perfectly teed up for over-the-road trucking. Um, it seems, I mean, if you want to have mundane tasks taken over by uh, autonomous vehicles, that that seems to me the, the way this would make much more sense to me. You know, General Motors is probably one of the larger, obviously one of the larger, I think they probably do large trucks uh, that carry freight across the country. So that might be one of the things that they use. I, I just don't see. And in Uber and, and Lyft, obviously, that it's pretty obvious where they want to go with it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I like the idea. I, you know, if you've been on the road enough and drive, driving across country, you know how unsafe it is with uh, tractor trailers. And it would be nice to have. And I'm sure, you know, they hear enough about drivers you know, sleep issues and, and things of that nature. So it would make more sense on a on a freight basis. Or, yeah, as a public service. And I think that that's another concern by having all these private motor companies involved with in this lobbyist and, and companies like Uber and Lyft, which are already so fraught in the legal landscape that in the course of investing all of the significance for driverless vehicles into private entities. And to me, it seems like 
so obvious that whatever future public transit innovations are made will have to also be in some form of autonomous operation. And of course, a lot of public transit networks around the world elsewhere outside of the U.S. are are autonomous and run safely and predictably without necessarily increasing congestion or anything like that. So I think that there's something to be said outside of this lobbying group that, yeah, we would want all the things that they want done. We would want those things done, but we would want them implemented in the public space and for you know, everyone to use, not as like everyone to, not in the same way that everyone can hail an Uber, but as in like everyone who goes down into the subway platform can get on the subway. So I I totally agree with you, Amelia, that the long view of this to me seems to be that we're just going to keep relying on roads as infrastructure and have even more cars on the, more vehicles on the road. I'm really excited about the notion of them as public transit, that and especially for elderly and people who can't drive. That, that those people could get around. I just, I keep thinking back to, you know, I see this big shift coming and like you also, I'm very, in a lot of ways, rah-rah, techno, yay, our future is going to be beautiful because the other nice thing is that the driverless cars have tended to be electric. And even though we know electric vehicles don't necessarily lead to less pollution, they are just much quieter. And frankly, so much of the noise mm-hmm. in the cities is is cars. If they can figure out how to make the tires a little less loud on the pavement, then I think, you know, we'll have a much quieter city, which could be a nice thing. But I just I keep thinking back to, okay when, um, you know, when Manhattan first started introducing automobiles on the same streets as horse drawn carriages, you know, how was that ultimately addressed in terms of safety? And I know there is tons of historical documentation on this. I've just never studied it myself. But, um, you know, at, at what point did they say, okay we have to come up with a set of rules that's really going to be a nationwide you know, way that we move forward with this change, which is a drastic change to the nature of our cities and how we move in them. So, you know, there's certainly some kind of historical precedence for it, but I remain very excited about it. But I can tell you all of my neighbors who are currently fighting against any kind of mass transit because they think that the, I don't know, the government is just trying to control their lives. They are not going to welcome driverless autonomous vehicles. And it doesn't really matter who introduces them. These people are, they are resistant to change like you would not believe. So I think we as architects <laughs> tend to be much more willing to accept change because we, that's what we do is design things that make things change. I see a long battle. So seeing these, these very heavy hitters in the market get together to work on it, I think is probably the only way it's likely to happen. Agreed. That's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, we are at Arc Sessions on Twitter. Or you can also send us an email to connect at rconnect.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. And we're also now on Google Play Music. Look out for our next one-to-one episode released each Monday. This coming Monday, we'll be speaking with Bernard Corey, a professor at the Harvard Graduate School of Design. Thanks for listening and until next week.